Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and on this Labor Day episode, I'm speaking with Lane Windham, Associate Director of the Kamenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. An experienced organizer, educator, historian, and activist, she was the 2015 recipient of SLSA's Robert H. Zeger Prize in Southern Labor Studies. And most recently, she is the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Lane Windham, welcome to Working History. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So your book, Knocking on Labor's Door, offers a different narrative of organized labor in the 1970s. Uh, But before we jump into that, could you give us a very quick version uh, of the history of organized labor in the post-World War II period, just so that we're caught up and everybody's on the same page? Sure. Um, I'll be happy to do a short version of that. Sure. So, you know, uh, historians generally say that unions were really at the peak of their influence in the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, the U.S. government had officially recognized workers' right to form unions in 1935 with the Wagner Act. And during World War II, millions of workers signed up for unions. Well, during the 1950s and 60s, unions were really at their heyday. Um, For instance, three quarters of manufacturing plants were under union contract. Unions set wage and benefit standards, even for workers who are not covered by union contracts, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. management routinely matched those unionized wages. Well, the standard narrative is that unions began to lose influence and members in the 1970s, uh, and historians give a number of reasons. Unions became bureaucratized and a kind of business unionism, and and they didn't organize. Mm -hmm. Um, Workers became more individualistic by the 1970s and turned away from the collectivity of unions. And then there's a whole discussion about unions not being part of sort of the rights revolutions of the Mm -hmm. 1960s and 1970s, the civil and women's rights movements. And so they lost this opportunity to grow and change. And of course, Jefferson Cowie's book, Uh, staying alive even calls the 1970s the last days of the working class. Mm -hmm. Now, I should add here that most historians do agree that the 1970s were very pivotal years that set the stage for workers' present crisis, right? This is the time when you have a birth of what I call a new economic divide that we're still living with today. Mm -hmm. Wages stopped rising along with productivity. Uh, Working people didn't share in those recoveries. You have you know, this is the beginning of globalization, technological change. Um, 
And that, of course, hurt uh, unions and workers because far more workers now could compete for jobs. Uh, and you have the rise of the service, retail and finance, all typically non-unionized areas. Mm -hmm. And they grew faster than manufacturing, which was organized labor's heart, right? Mm -hmm. So union membership takes a sharp turn downward. By the mid-1980s, private sector union density would be cut nearly in half from where it had been uh, a decade earlier to 14 percent. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so it's, you know, the story basically is this t sort of this apex in mid the mid-century and then this steady decline and the 1970s are pivotal to that. Right. So the dominant narrative then is of organized labor in the 70s of setbacks and decline. But your book offers a different perspective on this. And you argue, in fact, that this was a decade, uh, a moment, if you will, of promise for the working class. And also, you help readers rethink who we see as the quote unquote typical unionized worker, the steel worker, the um, auto worker, typically white male, um, upper upper working class or even middle class. So could you talk a little bit about why you see this as a moment of promise for the labor movement versus this this moment of decline? Right. So I I tell a very different tale than most historians tell about this this time. I argue this was a decade of enormous working class activism and promise. Mm -hmm. I think that many historians have been blind to that working class vitality because they've focused on one thin slice of the working class, mm -hmm. often union, all unionized white men, who are the people who already had unions. Mm -hmm. And so they tell a story of backlash and defeat. Well, I, I ask readers to broaden their focus to the people of people who didn't already have unions, many mm -hmm. of the women and people of color who had finally gained greater access to the nation's best jobs following the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So this was far from the last days uh, of the working class. These were really the first days of a transformed and diversified and newly activated working class. And, you know, as these workers poured, and, and this is really the heart of the book, as these workers poured into workplaces in the 1970s, uh, they demanded unions and mm -hmm. they didn't just want a job, right? They wanted a really good job. And so they drove a whole new wave of private sector union organizing efforts. And private here is important because historians have been clear that there was lots of organizing in the public sector, but they, this tale about the private sector just hasn't been told. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when historians tell their story of the decline of the working class, they often focus on the percentage of the workforce that had a union or the numbers of the workers who were winning union elections. Well, mm -hmm. both those numbers drop in this decade, right? Um, but I argue that th that in no way allows us really to get to workers' motivation. Mm -hmm. um, what if we don't just count the people who won? What if we count the people who tried? Right. right? Mm -hmm. So I used a novel way to get this, this issue. I looked at the records of National Labor Relations Board elections, and I focused on the number of workers voting in elections, mm -hmm. those who tried mm -hmm. to form unions, whether they won or not. Doing this allowed me to see that the number of workers trying to form unions was steady through the 1950s, the 1960s, the heyday of labor, 
all the way through the entire 1970s. It drops finally in about 1982-83. And this is despite a huge increase in employer resistance to organizing in that decade. So there's not a decline in union organizing. In fact, the opposite is true. You have half a million workers a year trying to form unions. You combine those in the private sector with the nearly 3 million public sector workers who formed unions in this decade. And it's clear to me that this is a moment of working class promise, um, you know, and mobilization. Mm -hmm. And in what sectors and among what workers was the momentum in the labor movement coming from? Well, this this new wave of organizing, it's led by young people, young baby boomers. Mm -hmm. You know, over half the workforce is under age 35 at this point. Women of all racial and ethnic backgrounds, women play a very important role. Many men of color. Mm -hmm. um, These are exactly, of course, the sorts of workers who won new access to the the full job market following the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. So I I tell the story, I talk about bank tellers, secretaries, Mm -hmm. textile workers, shipbuilders, nurses, auto workers, all of these people tried to form unions, flight attendants rallied to demand unions, professional football players voted for a union. Hospital workers are key. They, um, hospital workers hadn't had the right to form a union through the labor board until 1974 at nonprofit hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they so th- those workers just won that right and they poured into unions and were very central to the wave. So here's, here's a few specific examples that I give in the book mm-hmm. that are maybe a little surprising. Employees at the Midwest Stock Exchange unionized, mm-hmm. bicycle couriers and bank employees in Washington, D.C. Uh, I talk about 450 workers at Yosemite Park in California who said, you know, we want a union in mm-hmm. 1976. So labor board agents rode out on horseback to their remote camps with collapsible ballot boxes wow. <laughs> strapped to the horse's sides. And they won two to one. Even security guards who worked for Pinkerton, the notorious union right. firm, successfully formed a union in these years. Right. So the South is also uh, plays a key role here. Many of the biggest organizing drives are in the South. Uh, And many of the activists were African-Americans who were part of that reverse migration to the South that really begins in the 1970s. They had gone up north often and worked in unionized plants. And when they came back to the South, they helped to unionize some of those plants. Uh, We can talk more about this, but, you know, the employers basically ramped up their resistance to Mm -hmm. unionizing to these workers and labor law was too weak to stop them. you know, and so the fact that these workers, that this wave couldn't uh, t- fully take hold, that they couldn't fully form unions, meant that they entered the next century on far weaker ground than if they'd been freely able to organize in the 1970s. Right. And so it seems that the uh, the movement in some ways is becoming much more diffuse, right? It's going outside of outside of the the traditional factories where you know where the heart of the union uh, movement had been for for quite some time. Um, so I'm I'm curious to know as well, um, you know, as this you know as this union movement is is moving into you know into retail, into service, into all these different sectors, what are workers looking for? Why are they wanting to organize? Were they hoping to have an improvement in sort of bread and butter issues, you know, better wages, seniority, um, those sorts of things? Or what are they what are they really looking for? 
You know, Beth, I think that is a really key question because, and I, um, you know, really worked with the sources and tried to fully understand that. And and I think the answer um, helps us to better understand not only these workers, but organized labor and collective bargaining's role within our employer-based social welfare state. So, you know, the, the workers were organizing for economic reasons. There's also a big element uh, that they were organizing for more respect on the job. And I'll talk mm-hmm. about both those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so workers, w- workers wanted a union because a union basically offered them a seat in the most secure tier of our nation's employer-based social welfare state, right? So mm-hmm. it was, sure, it's wages, but it's also access to healthcare, retirement, fair treatment on the job. You know, if you're a German or a British working person, you don't have to have a union to get a to get good healthcare or mm-hmm. to have a good retirement, right? Mm-hmm. You get that as a matter of citizenship. But in the U.S., you know, as, as lots of historians like Jacob um, Hacker and Jennifer Klein have shown, our social welfare system relies on employers. It's a whole system that we developed after World War II. But we never said to employers, okay, we're going to base social welfare system and you have to provide these for your mm-hmm. workers. Mm-hmm. We, we never did that. So how did we ensure that individual corporations had to step up and fulfill that social welfare role? Well, as Jacob Hacker talks about, the government provided some carrots like tax breaks for employer-provided health care. But it also relied on a big stick, firm level collective bargaining. We tend to think of collective bargaining as something that happens between employers and workers, right? They sit down in a room, they talk at a table, they come up with a contract. But really the state's role is central, central, right? Mm -hmm. Employers Mm -hmm. don't bargain out of goodwill, right? They don't sit at that table out of goodwill. They do it because they're required to bargain with workers at that workplace who vote for a union. Mm-hmm. They're required under the, the 1935 Wagner Act. So unions and collective bargaining, basically our country relies on them to do the kind of redistribution and social safety network that governments do elsewhere. Well, how do workers access this kind of redistribution, right? If, from a worker's perspective, you can organize a new union, mm-hmm. usually through a labor board election, and that's what a lot of these workers were doing. Or you can get a job where the employer matches the wages and benefits at a company where the workers have voted for union. But either way, at some point in time, some group of workers had to go through this organizing process. And mm-hmm. so union organizing, I say, is really the narrow door through which working people can access our nation's most robust social welfare. So it was a no brainer for a lot of people to organize, right? Because that's how our system is set up. That's how you get the best job possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's how you take care of your family and yourself in terms of all your social welfare needs. Um, Now, respect on the job was also an issue for workers. And that was especially true of the baby boomers, people of color, the women who were influenced by a new rights consciousness in these years. One of my favorite quotes in the book is from uh, a a shipyard worker, Alton Glass. Uh, He followed his father into the Newport News shipyard in Virginia. Um, His father was the son of sharecroppers and had spent most of his life in the segregated South. And Glass was a young upstart union activist and he took on racism and unfair treatment in the shipyard. Uh, You know, here's the direct quote, where my father would tell me to shut up, 
I wouldn't shut up. And my supervisors who were older and white would expect me to shut up and I wouldn't. So, you know, Glass was a strong union activist and later went on to serve as president of, of his union. So for him, a union was was about social welfare, but it was also about respect as a young black mm-hmm. man in the South. Mm-hmm. So in your uh, in your book, you focus on four case studies. Uh, one of them is is um, shipbuilding at Newport News in Virginia. You also look at the textile industry using Cannon Mills in Kannapolis, North Carolina, as an example. The retail sector with Woodward and Lothrop department store in Washington, D.C., and then also the nine to five movement among clerical workers in Boston. So can you talk a little bit about why you first of all, chose these four case studies. And then second, can you give us any particularly illustrative examples of how your moment of promise thesis plays out in these various places? Sure. I'd be happy to do both of those. So, you know, I I picked these stories because they covered a range of industries and geographic areas Though this is not a Southern story per se, it's a national story. Two of the four main stories are in Southern states. They're North Carolina and Virginia. Mm-hmm. And a third, uh, the Woodward and Lothrop department store is based in the greater Washington DC area that includes Virginia and Maryland. Mm-hmm. And I think this reflects the extent to which union organizing in the 1970s was a very Southern and Sunbelt story. I show, for instance, that um, 44% of the labor board elections in the 1970s were in Southern and Sunbelt states. That was up from 38% in the 1960s. You know, so there's lots of organizing um, in the South. When I when I started this research, um, I knew I wanted to to look at union elections, and I so I called up the National Labor Relations Board and I said, "May I please have your list of the largest union elections since?" you know, World War II. Mm-hmm. Well, the labor board doesn't have a list. <laughs> they, don't, <laughs> they, don't, they don't keep it. Um, it turns out the AFL-CIO had a list. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I got it from them and I, I was pretty surprised by what I saw. There were a number of large campaigns in the 1970s, um, uh, including Newport News, which was the largest with 19,000 workers. Wow. And that was huge. Yeah. It was far bigger than any. I had been a union organizer. And it was far bigger than anything I'd ever worked on. So Newport News was the first and it set a really high bar for the rest. And I'm still kind of amazed that no other historian had already told this story because it's the largest labor board election ever in the South. Um And I clearly saw there how workers used both labor and civil rights in tandem to win more power on the job. The workers had won two major conciliation agreements on um, racial discrimination in 1967, 1970, but they felt that they still needed a union in order to access better wages, treatment, benefits, et cetera, on the job. So that was sort of you know, a lot of the crux of my argument came out through this one case story. But I thought maybe Newport News was an exception. After all, it's a big Navy contractor and mm-hmm. those ships mm-hmm. have to be built in the U.S. Um, the, the They have to be made in the U.S. Well, OK, so maybe those shipyard workers weren't as impacted by a globalizing economy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe they felt more free to organize than did other workers. So to get at that, 
I turn to textiles, which I know is close to your heart. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I looked at Cannon Mills, um, and I had long, uh, I, I used to work for the Clothing and Textile Workers Union in the mm-hmm. South in the mm-hmm. 1990s, and I had long heard rumors about this one lone wolf organizer who had nearly, or it's, myth, you know, this mythical story about right. this guy who had nearly organized the giant mill in 1974. So I was curious about that, and it took some digging to get to the truth. And in the end, I tell the story of two union elections, one in 1974 and one in 1985, and I talk about how in 1974, there were more black workers than ever due to pressures and laws from the civil rights movement, um, because of course, uh, black workers for a long time were uh, basically kept out of textile mills. If black men were working, it was in the most dusty and dirty jobs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have a huge change in the textile uh, industry in, in these years. So. Um, so in 1974, the workers, this, this sort of transformed workforce nearly wins a union. Uh, and, and the union is shocked that <laughs> these workers almost vote for it. But then in the second uh, election in 1985, there are even more African-American workers in the plant. Um, but the union then it loses heavily. It's defeated two to one. Mm. Well, mm-hmm. why? So here I bring in trade policy and I talk about how the employer used globalization basically as a weapon mm-hmm. to defeat the workers union and unionization effort. And that's despite the fact that the union was actually a partner with the textile industry in efforts to pass protective textile trade policy. Right. So it's 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 sort of a it, it was a more complicated story than I thought I was going to tell. <laughs> and that happens, I guess, once you get in the archives. That's right. You realize, yeah. realize that there's you know more to the story. So, OK, but the Newport News and Canon are, you know, these great industrial sector stories in the South. But much of the job market in the 1970s shifted away from manufacturing. It's towards retail and service. So the last two case studies look at these sectors and I find that workers organized there too. And that's different, you know, than what historians say. We don't talk a lot about the unionization and the retail industry, for instance. Mm-hmm. Well, Woodard and Lothrop, this Washington, D.C. department store, it turns out, I, I, again, this was on this list that I got of all these elections, and it sounded like, you know, I thought it was going to be a great one to study. It turns out it was a very difficult election to research. Uh, it's a great example of why sh- you should never attempt a project before you know what sources are actually <laughs> available. Um, I knew that there was this big election, uh, but there was very little in the labor board records or the parent union's papers, and the local union office had had a flood. Oh, of course. Right. And so, but there was one local 400 office worker, a person who works for the unions, who remembered the dusty stacks of the union newsletter stored way back in a back closet. And uh, so once I got that, it had basically stories about the whole election process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I was able to also find some workers who were able to tell their stories. And the end result is, I think, far richer than I had ever imagined it was going to be. And then the final one, nine to five, uh, is in some ways the most complex of the stories. These women office workers in Boston 
uh, built on new momentum from the women's movement to basically experiment with a new form of labor organizing that didn't rest on traditional labor law and collective bargaining. And so they sort of did an end run around this increasingly fraught and broken labor law system. Uh, and I find them very interesting because that is a lot of the kind of organizing that workers are turning to today. And in fact, I um, a, a lot of sometimes people call them alt labor uh, or you know the new generation of labor organizations. Um, and I think that these women were the foremothers in some ways of of that kind of new organizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you you had asked me about uh, sort of examples about how. But, you know, how this all fit together, how mm-hmm. this moment of prof- promise uh, thesis plays out. Well, here, um, I think I'll talk for a minute about African-American women's organizing efforts in particular. Of course, um, black women had long held the sorts of jobs uh, that were not covered by labor law in this country, like working as domestic workers or farm workers. But following the Civil Rights Act, they had new access to many of the kinds of jobs that were eligible for unionization. Uh, And they turned out to be among unions most active supporters. Um, So in 1935, there were very few black women who were in the nation's unions. But by 1979, the peak of black women's unionization, nearly one in four black women workers was in a union. you know, black women's unionization rate in 1979 outstripped that of white women by two to one. And again, historians have noted that this was true in the public sector, but they have not talked about it in the private sector. So, uh, you know, the African-American women led much of the nationwide push for hospital unionization uh, once these hospital workers got the right to form unions, healthcare workers, filed 200 petitions for elections in the very first month that they were allowed to do so. And lots of these are African-American women. I also ran into a lot of uh, African-American women who were organizing in retail. Mm -hmm. I interviewed a woman named Leola Dixon, who had worked for a housekeeper at Woodward and Lothrop, or people called it Woody's, that was the nickname in Uh D.C. She had worked for years in the 1950s and into the 60s as a housekeeper. Uh, and department stores uh, did not have African-American people serving on the retail floor. Uh, you, they had uh, black women serving in the tea rooms or as you know, opening doors, black men opening doors mm-hmm. in uniform, but you didn't have people serving. But this changed under pressure from the civil rights movement into the mid and late 60s. And so Leola Dixon was one of the first African-American to be tapped as a sales associate. She worked in the flowers and gifts department and she was a very strong supporter of the union. Um, And so, you know, this is sort of an example of uh, how people used both civil rights and the union rights in order to better their lives. Mm -hmm. In the end though, after, you know, all of these stories that you tell, and as you had talked about earlier in the conversation, labor in this area ultimately doesn't succeed in a, in a phenomenal way, even though there's all of this organizing effort going on. And so the, I think the logical question is, if workers wanted unions so much, which apparently they did, if they're organizing and holding all of these elections, why then didn't didn't labor grow? What what was happening that was 
beyond the scope of just organizing at the grassroots level. Right. So um, there are lots of reasons that labor wasn't able to grow, uh, you know, including a globalized economy and technological change certainly were part of the equation. But so, too, was the fact that workers could not effectively sign up, join and join unions. Um, and that is an important piece to the equation. It's one that not only historians, but I think journalists and popular commentators often overlook. Before I sort of explain what employers did in the 70s, I want to make sure that your listeners know the process workers have to go through in order to get a union in this country, because a lot of people just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important context because it's a very onerous process. Basically, to get a union, first, at least 30% of people at a workplace have to sign a union card saying they want a union. Normally, unions wait until at least half the people have signed a card. Mm-hmm. Then you petition the labor board for an election, and they then wait eight to 12 weeks before they come to the work site and hold an election. During that time, the employer has free access to the workers to hold meetings, to campaign against the union, to require people to attend meetings against the union, and the union has no access at all to the workers inside the workplace. The vast majority of employers fight workers efforts to form unions, and here I'm citing research from Kate Bronfenbrenner at Cornell, Mm -hmm. about a third of employers fire workers who try to form unions, about half threaten to shut down and move Mm -hmm. if the workers form a union. Uh, And so only once workers have gone through this difficult process is their employer then required to sit down and negotiate a collective bargaining agreement that covers wages, healthcare, and retirement. And even then, a year later, only half of those workers actually have a contract. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so back to your question on what happened. Why didn't labor grow? Um, You know, what I discovered is that unions were organizing, though they could always do more, they were organizing, and workers wanted unions. But what did decline was workers' ability to win those elections. Mm-hmm. And employers did three things in this period uh, to ramp up their resistance to unions. The first is that they became far more willing to bend and break labor law. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number of what you call unfair labor charges, um, which is basically an incidence of breaking the law, against the number of these charges against employers doubled in this decade, as did the number of illegal firings. And that law breaking was effective. While workers had won roughly 80% of union elections in the 1940s, by the late 1970s, they were winning less than half. Hmm. So there's that. Second, uh, even unionized employers at the core of the economy, those manufacturers like GM, US Steel, Goodrich, they began to viciously fight their workers' efforts to unionize. Even as they're sitting down at the table and negotiating with other workers, they're saying, we're not gonna let other people in, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I actually um, looked at the number of unfair labor practices by sector, uh, and I looked at, so I looked at the ratio of elections to unfair labor practices by sector. So in the retail, service, and manufacturing. And it was clear that that ratio is higher among manufacturers. There's a break in the 70s where uh, poor election in the sector, manufacturers are just breaking the law even more than employers in retail and service. Mm-hmm. So the, pe- the employers at the heart of 
the unionized economy or are resisting organizing. Finally, third, employers began to rely much more heavily on, on union busters, right? Anti-union lawyers. And many of those um, union busters as well as management received their training in the nation's universities that began to teach that good business practices involved resisting union organizing. And these anti-union consultants not only fought the unions and taught people to fight unions, but they bred fear among management about the new levels of women and people of color in the workforce. And they used the newly diversified workforce to gin up business. So for instance, one anti-union consultant offered a quote, union vulnerability audit in which a company could determine if it was at risk because of a substantial percentage of blacks, Hispanics, or females uh, at the workplace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's just the, an example of the kinds of things that they did. Um, now, as I said, um, employer resistance to organizing, it's not the only reason. I'm not arguing that this is the sole reason that labor declined, but I do think it was a potent piece of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think we also have to ask, why did employers fight unions with such vigor? Mm -hmm. After all, you know, while companies had generally never been uh, good friends with, uh, with unions, uh, there had been sort of uh, a relationship in the mid-century, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's starting to break down. Well, when the employers faced a crisis of profit in the 1970s. They really wanted out of those social welfare obligations, right? Because remember how we talked about a union contract is the way that you get, uh, a worker can get the highest, most secure tier of the social welfare. Well, employers wanted out of that. They mm -hmm. wanted out of having to provide all of that. And the best way to do that was to avoid the union that could force you to play that role in the first place. Mm -hmm. Right? A global economy meant far less bargaining power for workers, and employers really pressed that advantage. They, they also squeezed unionized workers in addition to resisting new organizing, and they did a lot of other things too. Right? They hired more temporary workers, they contracted out labor, they offshored jobs, and eventually, you know, we find ourselves now talking about the gig economy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's the the end result of all this. Um, and all of this fed the new economic divide that still shapes our political economy today. So that's maybe a good segue for us to talk about what takeaways that readers can have from your book. Based on your experience as a labor organizer and then also what you, what you wrote about in your book, what do you see as the lessons that um, we can learn from this history for the political and economic moment that we're in now? Right, you know, it's funny, when people ask me how long it took me to write this book, I usually say about seven years, and you know, that's fast for an academic book. That's but right, re yeah. But re really, that's a lie, because I started this book although I didn't know that's what I was doing, but it's based when I, 25 years ago, I became a union organizer in the South and I sat in hundreds of working people's living rooms across the South, women who sewed t-shirts in Mississippi, auto parts workers in Chattanooga, textile workers in Nashville. Um, and, you know, I spent my 20s listening to people talk about their jobs and their fears about forming a union and those fears were really well founded every campaign i worked on the company fought 
the union and fought really hard. Well, in 1998, I moved to doing media outreach for the national AFL-CIO. And I found that I was part of a new national public conversation about unions. And yet this old world, this union organizing world was basically invisible Mm -hmm. in this public discourse. People just had no idea what it took to form a union. Um, but not only that, I was battling this narrative that somehow people didn't want unions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Lots of people did want unions, but it was very hard to get them. So this book in some ways gets to the roots of that experience I had as a union organizer. How and when did it become so hard to form unions and what's the larger meaning of that? I really hope people walk away from the book understanding that unions did not just fade away. It wasn't like some natural process and working people didn't give up on unions. In fact, working people made this full throttle effort to organize in the 1970s and and they lost. They're defeated. But losing is a very different thing than not fighting at all because then the next step we have to ask is why these people lost. And then we're going to have a discussion about structure and systems and laws. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be a complicated discussion, right? The second, I I think this book uh, at this particular moment speaks to what I think is a very wrong-headed discussion that we're having about class in this country. Um, You know, in the aftermath of last November 8th, uh, a lot of the rhetoric was that elites had lost touch with working people. Um, And I think that's true, but I think that there's still the journalists, uh, et cetera, are still getting working class wrong. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot about working class white men, right? We hear about images of blue collars, hard hats, resentments expressed as votes for Donald Trump. But I think that image of America's working class is distorted because America's working class is largely female, disproportionately black and brown, Um, And white men really haven't been the epicenter of our nation's working class since the 1960s. In fact, if you use education, which a lot of people do to define working class, the majority are women, right? Um, And so I think we're at an interesting moment because despite the challenges of our economy right now, America's diverse working class is now building a new workers movement, um, often outside the media spotlight. Sometimes they're building traditional unions, like all these adjuncts who are forming unions, Mm -hmm. but they're also experimenting with new forms like the National Domestic Workers Alliance and public campaigns to fight minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's a really very interesting moment in uh, the labor movement, but it's a story that is often not getting told because we're focused on the white guys in hard hats and Mm -hmm. whether they voted for Trump or not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. So it it encourages us to think bigger and think, you know, more broadly about what what working class is and who is working class and and how are they coming together and organizing, perhaps not necessarily, as you said, into a formal union. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah. 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 And and why, you know, what they're facing in terms of the new challenges in Mm -hmm. today's economic environment and how they're organizing in new ways to overcome them. Right. Before we wrap up, uh, just to shift gears slightly, although not altogether, you're spearheading a new initiative uh, called Will Empower. And I'd like, if you would, uh, to 
tell us a little bit about that. What is what is Well Empower? What are you looking to do with it? Um, just educate our listeners a little bit about that. Sure. So Will Empower and Will stands for Women Innovating Labor Leadership. It's a joint partnership between the Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor and Rutgers uh, has something called the Center for Innovation and Worker Organization. And the idea is to build a new generation of women labor leaders, both within traditional unions and within some of these new forms of labor that I was just describing, um, because women are central to uh, our current economy, our new service-based, retail-based, financialized economy. Women are at that core in a way that they uh, haven't been for uh, years before. Mm -hmm. And so basically, you know, our whole idea is that, especially at this moment, uh, when women have their dignity has come under so much attack, mobilizing women's power is really going to be key to revitalizing uh, a potent workers movement and counterbalancing outsized corporate power. So we have several pieces of this. We're going to have cohorts of collective learning and mentoring for women who are early in their careers or mid-career. And the, we're also gonna have apprenticeship programs and fellowships and a whole public facing part of it. Uh, we're just just getting it up and, and going this summer. It should be launched this fall. Mm-hmm. So look for that, Will Empower. Okay, great. That sounds like a really exciting initiative. Well, Lane Wyndham, uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History and talking about your book. And good luck with, uh, with Will and Power. Terrific. Thanks. Thanks again to Lane Wyndham, Associate Director of the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University and author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. 